Welcome to Digication Scholars Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Yan. In this episode, you will hear part one of my conversation with Jill Peterson Adams from Oxford College of Emory University. More links and information about today's conversation can be found on Digication's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Full episodes of Digication Scholars Conversations can be found on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. Welcome to Digication Scholars Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Yan. My guest today is Jill Peterson Adams from Oxford College of Emory University. Jill is the Director of Global Learning and Undergraduate Research, and she is the Senior Lecturer in Interdisciplinary Studies at Oxford. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, Jill, for being here with me today. and uh, and welcome to um, to uh, to being a digication scholar. Uh, I I think that uh, um, so you and I have never met. No, nope. I think. Uh, and uh, but I have heard a lot about your work through um, our uh, uh, colleague Peter McLennan uh, at Oxford, um, and uh, I believe that it was. Um, it was actually through your previous position, which was the director of experiential learning, learning. Yeah. Um, that I started hearing about your work. So you want to tell us a little bit about what you do at Oxford? Yes, I love my position. So going into this, I thought, man, if I could design an ideal um, job for myself, it would be like part professor, part travel agent. <laughs> That's kind of um, where I've managed to land. So at Oxford, even when I was director of experiential learning, I had kind of a hybrid faculty and administrative role. For the administrative role, um, I directed our main areas of experiential learning. So we had programs in areas of community engaged learning, uh, academic internships, undergraduate research, global learning applied arts we have an organic farm and i may have left one off awkwardly but so we have several of these areas and i was sort of the more curricular coordinator so like where it really integrates into the academic program that was where i worked as those positions grew we kind of split it so now i'm focusing on the global learning and undergraduate research because those programs have gotten so large and we recently brought on an amazing colleague to do some of the other areas so i'm still working in the same experiential learning milieu just a little more focused on my faculty side my training's in philosophy of religion but my appointment is in interdisciplinary studies and it suits me really well because I work with a lot of visual culture studies and memorial culture studies in post-war Japan um, and in the past uh, kind of post-Holocaust, post-Showa studies. So interdisciplinary studies, my project was always super interdisciplinary and it wasn't always legible to really um, more narrowly specialized religion folks or philosophy folks. So now at Oxford, we have only first and second year students. We're kind of a liberal and tar- a liberal arts intensive area within Emory University. And so I teach a lot of introductory level courses. The 
course where I first started using ePortfolios was something we call a discovery seminar. And that is something that all first years have to take. It's a very small group. And they're also um, my group of advisees that I have for the entire time at Oxford. So you get this really like close knit first semester experience and you get to do really just fun, creative things with the seminar. So I teach that regularly. Um, I teach regular courses like Introduction to Visual Culture. I teach um, something else that we have that actually I, the colleague you mentioned before, P Peter McClellan, um, directs at Oxford, which is called the Milestone Portfolio. And that is like a cumulative e-portfolio documenting the students' development for their whole trajectory at Oxford. And so our advisees that we have in this seminar, their very first semester on our campus, they take that uh, a milestone portfolio course in their very last semester. And in between, they're producing their artifacts and kind of documenting their experience at Oxford. So it's fun for me because that means um, in terms of like the, the arc of our general education program, we sort of think of it as like discover, explore, reflect. Discover is sort of the discovery seminar. Explore is like a lot of the experiential learning stuff that I get to do. And then reflect is reflected in the milestone portfolio. So I kind of get to see a lot of the students through their full trajectory. And that's part of what jazzes me up about it. Yeah. So um, I have jazz as well. Uh, the, the, I wanted to, uh, um, dig deeper into this part that just sounds so much fun. It's the experiential learning piece. Um, like you said, it's, you know, that's where you get to explore. You get to, you know, after, you know, you discover, explore, reflect, right. Yep. Um, and, uh, especially for, folks who might be listening to this who don't know what that means who don't know what taking a course in visual culture means what what can you sh tell give give us a little color on the what's fun about it like what what do students get to do yeah so i'll start with experiential learning in general mm -hmm. um because it it can take form it can take color from so many different cool things um, so like at its most basic level, you know, it's learning through doing, but what I like to say is like learning through reflection on doing, um, because I think a lot of times people think like, oh, well I do hands-on applied work in X or Y or Z, which is experiential and valuable, but for the experiential learning, like the pedagogy and the practice, being able to do that thing and then come back and intentionally reflect on what you did, why you did it, how it connected to the stuff that you're learning in class. That's kind of where the, the real learning happens. So for example, all introductory science courses, not all, most, have lab experiences. That is hands-on learning, as we all know. But some of our upper-level labs like really have students self-design a project. They start with a, a hypothesis that's unique to them. They get to do all of the lab practices. And um, instead of having like that nicely set up 
lab environment, you know, it's, it's messy. Stuff doesn't work. The hypothesis is not proven. The culture doesn't grow, you know, like all of those mm-hmm. yeah. messier things that really allow you to think like, oh, okay, right. what do I need to do next time? How can I uh, reformulate my question? And mm-hmm. so in my area, which is a more humanities-based area, we try to do similar things. So we try to think like, okay, well, where are the, the living labs for the kinds of questions that we would ask in, in my case, like humanities disciplines? Mm-hmm. And I think the two that we're particularly good at at Oxford um, – we actually do really well with internship, but it feels like a little bit of an outlier in terms of the connection to um, what I'm teaching right now. So I'm going to bracket that one, but community engaged learning. So we have people going and working with community partners. Um, sometimes that's project-based where they're like, the partner has a specific project that they either need done or they are actively working on. And the student is able to connect with it and learn what's going on in that kind of partnership environment they come back to the classroom and they i mean it happens in our spanish language classes it happens in our psychology classes it happens in our ethics classes so the connections can be super wide ranging even with the same community partner um but that's one thing about experiential learning that i love the other one is um global learning that one is, you know, maybe kind of the the heaviest lift. If you're thinking about a model like study abroad in terms of going outside of the United States or study away, which is travel-based learning within the United States. But both of those at Oxford, instead of it being like, um, you know, you like you take a semester at a university in X location for us, the course is still happening on campus with one of our regular faculty. And then the travel component is meant to illustrate, bring to life, allow some immersion on the ground. Like, so you get to see stuff that you've been learning all semester on campus at Oxford with a faculty member you really know. And then the whole class picks up and goes to a place for which those ideas are applied. Interesting. So does that faculty member stay on campus while that happens? They travel. They travel with um, you as well. Yeah, they but- do. Yeah. So the, the, the faculty member in the subject area travels and then a co-leader faculty member who's like a maybe a topically adjacent faculty member, you know, like they bring a new perspective to it or sometimes their expertise seems totally random and then you get to see like the cool connections when they're on the ground with the students Mm -hmm. and then a lot of times we also have someone coming along that's able to connect the academics to some of the student development experience like the campus life elements Mm -hmm. and so they might be a professional in that area and then they kind of help the student kind of make it come full circle in terms of their oxford experience yeah you know, there is so much that you said that I, I want to learn more about. One thing that almost, you know, got me right away was when you were talking about, you know, there's a difference between hands-on learning and that experiential learning that you define, which has the reflective component. Mm-hmm. And it's not just a component. It's almost like this iterative thing that keeps going yeah. 
back and forth you know you sort of you know it's it's a it's a it's 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 like one doesn't go without the other right and i think something about um uh you know sort of hands-on learning especially now that i see um you know uh uh these uh boot camps on this is how you can do a coding in six weeks and then you'll you get a six-figure job, I promise. You know, in Silicon Valley, yep. and um, and we it comes with hands-on learning because you have to program something. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not they're not they're, they're telling you the truth that you know you're going to do something hands-on, um, except that it really doesn't come with the full spectrum of this. You know what a real experiential learning comes with, and I think that's a really you know stark difference because i think that that reflective piece um simply takes time and takes experience takes space to to happen doesn't it it does i like how you imagine it as iterative i think that's really how we do too um so i think when i'm working with faculty to develop an experiential learning course um sometimes where they'll start is like, oh, okay, so we'll we'll do our thing all semester and then I'll have them write a reflection at the end. Mm-hmm. And that is a helpful first step in processing your experience. But what we then try to work on is actually how can you make it cyclical within the course so that the, the student has a chance to, and this is modeled on, um, the Kolb cycle, it was, um, David Kolb put it out there and it's an experiential learning cycle where you have kind of pre-learning, then application, then analysis, reflection, and kind of regrouping and going back in. And so that's what we try to help people see how they can do in their courses or, I mean, outside of the classroom, this works too, right? So you'll have kind of a, okay, here's what we will be doing this semester what do you know? What do you need to know? What skills do you have to learn? And that could be learning with your partner, um, your partner provider in terms of global learning, your community partner with community engaged learning, your um, principal investigator in the lab, any of those things. What kinds of trainings do you need? What do you know? What skills do you bring to it? What do you need to know? Then you formulate your question you're learning your concepts in class, you go into the community, and then you come back and you have an intentional period of reflection. And that can be critical analysis, right? Like it doesn't have to be a personal journal article about your um, Mm -hmm. inner development, though it can be that too. Mm -hmm. We find that it's most effective if a student kind of can do both of those things. But then you think, okay, well, that's what I learned this week. So when I go back to the partner or I go out into the field tomorrow, what do I need to do differently? Or what do I want to know now? Or how can I problem solve that thing that happened to me? And then you get to do right. it again. Right. So being able to do that several times over the course of the semester really, I think, is where some of the magic happens and yeah. the pain. I mean, you know, like it's not easy, but it's yeah. awesome. And you know it's so interesting. Now, when people listen to this, it's probably going to be you know timing wise, you're going to have to 
rewind back. We are now talking in August. The the Olympics had just um, wrapped up in Tokyo, and um, I, um, you know, I've been sort of loosely following. You know, you know, um, and I just generally really amazed and respect the the things that you know these amazing world class athletes do, and they have the same thing too. Right when you perform at the absolute pinnacle, you know level of you know pushing, pushing the boundary, uh, the envelope of what a human can do, they are also working in this very iterative way, and some of them do it at real time, meaning yep. that you know this happened thirty seconds ago. I'm now going to reflect on what I just did wrong, and I'm going to correct it. I'm going to learn from that. Um, yeah, amazing. I, I feel like I followed the athletes in the Olympics this time, like with the Tokyo Olympics in a way that I haven't before. And I was so struck by that. Of course, like maybe the most visible in the U S was Simone Biles and, you know, having this colossal, powerful lead up to the Olympics, everyone's hanging on the edge of their seats to see what she'll do. She gets there and she struggles and she's got the case of the twisties and has to regroup and then regroup again. And every day, like the the viewing public isn't sure what's going to happen. She, you know, gets to the, I think it was the beam final by the end and is able to compete and kind of um, get back on the horse uh, in a one of the less twisty disciplines. Mm-hmm. But then what was very interesting to me is now across YouTube, you can see some things that are kind of unpacking what happened how did she deal with it how did she train through it and i love like i'm just hooked on seeing like the process um it's not just about your strength training or your endurance training or your techniques but like it's in your head it's how do you approach it how do you think about it how do you problem solve and that's just like so cool to me yeah and i think that's a that's definitely a an aspect of learning and pedagogy that it feels like um it feels like um uh if you are super super focused on the discipline and the skills sometimes you forget that students also need this this you know this aspect of training and in in many ways that's what's going to become most useful for them later on in life which really speaks to, in my opinion, at least the the value of this kind of liberal arts education, um, because that's really what it it um, allows you to do and apply that to all kinds of situations and scenarios in life. It could be about dealing with, you know, later on in life. Maybe it's, um, you know, what if a family member got sick? What if, you know, it could be any situations, and you have to sort of figure it out because there isn't a book that you can just you know, have the skills learned for, for every situation, right? I totally agree. Um, that's something that we really work on with actually our, I mean, all of them, but like, especially our internship students. Um, we have like an academic internship course that the students will take alongside an internship that they're doing. But what's interesting about our population of students engaging in these internships is they're first and second year students in college. Most internships that students are competing for um, at like when they're university students, they're doing that in their junior year or their senior year. 
one of our really intentional things for these first and second year students is to set up the space to fail, to realize that the field they thought was their ideal field is not for them, or to realize that the field that they say when they're meeting someone or networking actually has a million different components and they can go into a different direction within that field using language they didn't know existed. And so being able to do that in your first and second year means you have a chance to regroup and try again and try something slightly different. So getting to talk to a student who is in their first internship after their first year at college and hated it and specifically then saying like, okay, that doesn't mean this internship was a failure. That means it was super valuable because now you get to change course. What are you going to do next? What courses are you going to take to try to get there? How are you going to strategize that? And then the next summer they get to try that thing, hopefully, and maybe it'll go better and maybe it won't. Um, but I, it's something that I really love about getting to coach internship students at Oxford, where you're doing it in your first and second years, and it's not a kind of sunk cost concern where like, by the time you're a junior, like, what are you going to do? You're already in business school. You're already in taking finance classes. Like, how much can you change? But after your first year, you definitely can. So I like that. Yeah. I think that that's, uh, so, that's so valuable and so important because and, – and I actually find that um, – I think I've spoken with other, other Digi scholars about this as well, which is, um, <clears throat> you know, when, when I was – when I was, you know, in college, I felt like that, at least for, for me, I'm from a Chinese family. And I think that there was pressure that basically said, go and get, do something that was going to make money. Yep. And I studied to become an architect. They didn't realize um, architects actually don't make that much money because it's like, a, you know, it's like you're like an artist. Yeah. Um, but, um, which I love. And, um, uh, but it was sort of like this, like, you know, um, for for them, they felt like, well, it's a respectable, you know, profession and you get a license and you you are a professional. And, and, and that was really, um, like, for them, really important. And I think for me, it was like, okay, yeah, they satisfy, you know, those checkboxes and, and, um, and, uh, but it was, um, there was a big part of it has that has to do with well, I needed to make a living, or I needed to find something to do, and um, and I could see myself in that job. But but today, students, at least maybe maybe some students still do this, but I feel like that there are more students that are um, perhaps looking for more purpose and meanings in life and. You know, they they feel like there are many. I, I feel like that there are many more choices. I feel like that they can now choose companies. Like even if I were to become an architect today, I might be very specifically looking for architecture firms that do environmental issues, or you know, or maybe I only you know I don't work for a company that builds I don't know casinos, um, and and and. And back when I was in school, that didn't, you know, like, yeah, maybe you sort of stay away from, you know, 
like the 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 like what's almost borderline gray areas, but then everything else is like uh, open, you know, open for business. Yes. Um, I don't know. It it feels really different, and I think that some of the kind of things that you are talking about, these experiences students have, allows them to develop those passion. You know, allows them to also make a decision on hold on a minute. I've been in this environment. This internship made me understand that this job requires a lot of. Whatever it is that they don't like is maybe yep. politics. It may be, it may be the power dynamics. Maybe a gender inequality. I mean, many many disciplines have that, right? And they can just say, you know what? Maybe that's the part that I don't want to do, or that's the part that I want to change, or somewhere you know they can sort of change course. I think that's so valuable. Yeah, one of the things we really work hard um, with students doing internships, but also the research students and students that might do global learning or work in the community is like, try to think more granularly, like that systems are complicated and there are a lot of interlocking parts, some of which you can control and choose and um, shape. And some of them you you can't as easily and you feel a little more buffeted about by them so like how how do you navigate a path where you are always assessing like what are my values does this experience fit with my values and my needs which includes the need to make a living and have a stable um, home and environment like so I think sometimes, especially when like some of my more hard science or business students find out that I'm in the humanities, they're expecting me to be sitting there and trying to talk them out of what they think they want to do. Uh-huh. And I, I'm not. I'm always trying to be like, <laughs> okay, first, how could the thing, your liberal arts experience, like the things you're learning in the well-rounded spectrum of your class, like how can that make you a better architect? financial advisor, doctor, whatever. Like, I want doctors who care about art. I don't necessarily want the person who wanted to be a doctor to become an artist. You know, like, I just, I try to to get them thinking about, like, being a human doing Mm -hmm. these things. So it's interesting that you brought up kind of like coming from a Chinese family with certain expectations and pressures, because Mm -hmm. one of my research students who is also Chinese has been talking to me a lot about family pressures and expectations. She'll be going to the business school. She'll be doing, I think it was a finance degree. I don't mean to be like scapegoating finance. Finance is very important. (laughs) But in her case, she's like, last year I did this high powered internship in Beijing. This year I'm doing another one. Both of those have been fine, but she's also my research student. So she's doing this humanities research and she's like, that's what I'm loving. That's where my passion is. But I don't actually want to give up on this other thing that I've committed to. So a lot of our conversations are about like, okay, well, how could you shape your use of your business degree in a way that allows you to be more creative, allows you to do research and generate reports in a way that's a little more fulfilling? Um, How can you find that trajectory through your field? Um, and it's been wonderful because I think she felt like it was an either or. And I think, you know, you were saying you feel like students have more choices or maybe they're just, um, 
framing their profession and their values a little bit differently. But mm-hmm. I think it is sometimes a process of seeing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, give give it a try the yeah. way you're hoping it'll work and see what happens next. I but also recognize know, that you never know. Like, how yeah. did you get from architecture to digication? Um, well, you know, that will definitely should be an episode at some point. Unto but, itself. But, but uh, I'll give you the really, you know, you know, short version of it. Um, I, after, you know, during when I was actually a student in architecture, I started doing all these, you know, computer graphics and 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 things like and things on a computer and learn how to how to how to use technology and uh, I ended up um, teaching um, at the school um, in architecture and a few other sort of computer graphics type areas and and it was through that that I fell in love with education and and so the education was really something that you know I, it was accidental, you know, we started yes. accidentally because I, um, we, we created it initially just for our students with zero expectation that it was, it wasn't even a piece of software. It was as, it was almost just like, you know how you were talking about, you know, you're designing a curriculum, you know, maybe with a faculty member and trying to incorporate reflection for us, yes. it's nothing more than like, I mean, look, it's important work, but it was just part of teaching and that was it and um and but we sort of came up with a tool for it and and um and it was almost accidentally it to just to prove that it wasn't four years into it that the school that we taught at um discovered that's what we were doing and said can we can we pay you guys some money and so that we can use it for the rest of the school and we will we had no idea what that really meant we were like yeah i guess you know like um, and, uh, and so it was, it was, it was an accident really. But uh, I love that it came out of your experience as an educator, you know, that it rose from things that you were discovering through teaching. And I think, you know, if we consider educator even more broadly outside of the university context in the way that can kind of give rise to a coming together of passions and professional expertise and whatever that that was part of why I asked because I feel like don't all of us kind of accident our way into <laughs> right. stuff that really fits yeah. our passions sometimes yeah. I feel like that might be the case yeah and I I do think that um there is also something I mean back to the internship idea there that you were you know the example you were giving about your students which is a which is a perfect example I I also find that at least in 2021, it feels like that there are more and more organizations, employers themselves, who are more aware of the type of, um, you know, that they can, they can, they can, they can put certain things, they can, they can place certain priorities in what they do that they didn't used to be able to do because it feels like, oh, that would be polarizing or that would upset a certain segment of our potential, you know, customers. Um, no, look, they still exist clearly. Um, and, um, and, um, but there is, um, there are many more, I would say, um, outspoken um, employers now where you can align your values so yeah. much better. And, They're much and more I transparent. Really feel like that, I really feel like that it used to be 
like sure you can go work for a charity or it's a for profit that was it yeah 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 um and so if you want to do good uh don't think you're going to do well Um, yes yes uh, and that that's that's really not the case these days i feel like that you have the choice um sometimes they're harder for some people it depends on the luck too you know what's around and all that um, and what part of the country you're in and, and so on and so forth. But I think that if you seek it out today, it's, it's, not, it's not nearly as hard to find anymore. And I think um, now maybe students realize that they can also ask those questions, mm-hmm. you know, that it's okay to ask about company sure. values, right. um, ethics, right. Right. projects. This concludes part one of our conversation with Jill Peterson Adams from Oxford College of Emory University. To hear part two, be sure to subscribe to Digication Scholars Conversations on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Digication Scholars Conversations is brought to you by Digication, a technology platform powering the most innovative e-portfolio programs in K-12 and higher education. Our website can be found at digication.com. This episode was produced by Drew Alvinicius. Thanks for listening.